I have a bit of a confession to make. Oh, okay. Interesting. So we kind of discussed this episode being our top 10 of 2019. Yes. After the first, I'd say two or three movies, it's all jumbled up in a group. And I really have a difficulty separating like number four from number seven. Right. So you've got like a mushy middle. Yeah. And I, so I end up having like three or four films that are still kind of like contending for the final two, three spots. Uh Uh-huh. So depending on how much I get to see, and I expect to see all of them before the actual awards uh, season, although the Golden Globes are tonight, but we don't care about them. No, we've been over that. (laughs) (laughs) So I I think this list is subject to change, but only in the middle. I think at the top, it's unlikely to change at all. Okay. But yeah. So did you have trouble with this year's uh, top 10? Not so much trouble as like what I did was I, I actually pushed myself and I created a list on Letterboxd, a public list of everything I saw in theaters this year. Right. Pretty much like ranked everything, all 55 of them. So wow, I put in the caveat in the in the list description saying it's a loosely ranked order. So right. like, okay, invariably, like probably like, kind of like you somewhere in the middle of the list. There's a lot of like, you know, areas where one movie could, you know, hop in front of another, depending on how I feel. But uh, on a given day or a given month, we're in this episode, we're going to be talking about like our top 10 of the year. But well, let's also mention a few of the ones that we really hated because they were still okay. There were a few that I re- I really hated. Okay, too. all right. That's usually usually that's something reserved for me. But okay, so stay tuned for that. <laughs> Welcome to the Extra Buttery Podcast. It's the first episode of 2020. Welcome back to the show. Hope you had a good new year. Hope you had a good holiday. Today, as tradition on Kinetoscope, the first podcast of the year will be a year-end wrap-up. So, Robert Snow, say hi, Rob. Hey, coming to you from Toronto over here. And Jason Chen in Vancouver. That's me. We're going to count down our top 10 films of 2019. We expect disagreements, agreements, some debate, some maybe a little anger towards each other, but it's okay. We're good friends. Yeah. So without further ado, let's get to the list. Robert, start off with your... Do you want to go top to bottom or bottom to top? Um, Let me see. I think I will go bottom to top. Okay. All right. Let's go. Number 10. All right. So coming in at number 10 for me is The Farewell. Oh, okay. Uh, This one was kind of, for me, it was kind of hopping around because uh, we had a plan originally to do a top 15 to make it easier on ourselves, but we, you know, forced ourselves to do number 10. So The Farewell for me, uh, this is the movie by uh, Lulu Wong, uh, starring Aquafina as a uh, young woman, uh, second generation American whose family is Chinese, who uh, finds out that her grandmother um, is, has been diagnosed with a terminal illness. And in her family's tradition, and the tradition of a lot of Chinese people, the idea is that they're going to keep this illness from the grandmother and let her pass away so that she doesn't experience any more like stress or fear or anything. But it's something that Aquafina's character objects to, you know, based on the way that she's been raised in a more like uh, Western or American context. Uh, She can't understand why somebody would do this to this woman that she cares so much about. Um, And just the way that Lulu Wang uh, kind of, she was telling a story that's probably familiar to a lot of people uh, from that same context, from that same background, but does does so in a way that's accessible to any type of audience member. You know, I'm sure regardless of what culture you come from, there's probably 
kind of similar things, similar weirdnesses that that can pop up depending on where you've come from and how you treat your elders. And uh, yeah, it uh, it I really struck a chord with me when it came out, and I felt like I had to I had to put it on my top ten somewhere. Yeah, so this one's on my top ten as well. Um, I'll review my list later. But the funny thing is, like this film kind of got forgotten eh, over the year because it was released so early on. And I'm kind of surprised there hasn't been like a late season awards push from it. Yeah. But it hasn't really like been forgotten from our memory, despite it being such an indie film. Um, So this is one that I think is quite intriguing leading up to awards. It's one of those like sneaky dark horse ones that could get a like, you know, a nomination here or there. But I don't know. I don't feel a strong push for consideration. It'll be cool to see like this might be more of a jumping off point for Lulu Wong in future movies. Like this is kind of the one that grabs people's attention initially, but then it's whatever she does next that might get a bit more recognition from the industry. It's hard to tell. Yes, Um, I think so. But before we uh, go too far down that tangent, uh, number nine for me is Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. Probably going to be a controversial choice. The fact that it's on my... That is a controversial choice. (laughs) The fact that it's on my my top 10 at all. Certainly, there's been a lot of fighting over the past couple of weeks since it came out, but... Rob, I feel like we've kind of flipped roles. Like, I used to be the instigator. Now you're the instigator with the crazy (laughs) wild assertions. It's... uh, What's the expression? Uh, New year, new me or something? Uh, (laughs) For like a week. (laughs) And And then everyone disappears from the gym. State your case. State your case. Like, and actually, I was I was uh, talking about this um, last night with two former guests on the show, um, Kate and Peter, who uh, were with us for our TIFF episode, and we were having a a very lively debate over a messenger thread um, about Star Wars. Well, not a debate, more just like a you know hashing things out and talking about the movie again. <laughs> and you know, I I think uh, a lot of people are in agreement. You know, especially if you liked the Last Jedi, you just like this. You know, we we kind of got into that in our last episode uh, there uh, at the end of the year. But for me, I just love Star Wars. I you know I'm willing to put up with all of its ridiculousness and its broken promises. I don't know what it is. It's the maybe the first franchise that I ever loved, but um, I I'm very open-minded when it comes to star Wars and I had to, I had to acknowledge that in my top 10. So it's, it's there at number nine. The rise of Skywalker is a film that I wouldn't say uh, a conspicuous miss, but it's definitely, I think not really in the contention for a lot of top 10 lists. Mm. So like, was there one specific factor knowing how troubled the reception has been that really made you put this film in the top 10? I don't know. I guess I have to, I have to kind of give it to um, growing up with the series and rewatching the, rewatching the movies over and over again. And just like, I really like the mythology. I like the lore. I have read way, way too much of the supplemental content and the visual dictionaries and all that stuff. Um, not to say that you... A true Star Wars fan. Well, yeah, but we have to tread carefully, though, because there's been a few people out there in the Twitter sphere and elsewhere who have uh, tried to make it sound as though the only way that you can enjoy the rise of Skywalker is if you have this pre-existing knowledge, which I don't think is true. You know, that's a very no. gatekeeper-y way of looking at the fandom. And I think that's, that's very, that's not legitimate at all, but I do feel right. that I, I have that extra background. So 
not that it helps me enjoy it more, but I guess I have more context for maybe how much worse it could have been. Um, right. You know, there's certainly decisions that they made in some of the comics and uh, and the novels and things that are just so wacky and so out there. And the fact that they didn't do that is almost like a whoo kind of thing. So right, okay, number eight. Yeah, keep you on track here. Number eight for me is Jordan Peele's Us. Mm. Um, I've been trying recently to. Uh, I, I mentioned this on a previous episode to try to. You know, tiptoe a little bit more into the horror genre because it was one that I wasn't really paying a lot of attention to. And honestly, there have been a few directors recently, Ari Aster being another one, um, who have been kind of pulling horror um, more out of the Friday the 13th or Nightmare on Elm Street or mm-hmm. other slasher movie type stuff and more into um, a kind of like Hitchcockian style of horror, which we hadn't. Arguably, we hadn't seen for a while. There weren't as many auteurs who were kind of doing very, um, uh, who were doing like unique horror stories. And Jordan Peele is definitely one of them. Mm-hmm. Like Get Out from a couple of years ago. Now this new one, Us, uh, with uh, some fantastic performances, certainly from Lupita Nyong'o and uh, the rest of the cast. And just the fact that it's a totally original story with, uh, it feels very simultaneously like mysterious but also very fleshed out um you know definitely plugging into a lot of um uh, social commentary without being too heavy-handed with it um so yeah for me i i really enjoyed that one i had to have it on my top 10 you didn't get a chance to see us i know so we won't dwell on it too much but in number seven for me has got to be once upon a time in hollywood okay you know i didn't i I had a great time at it but i can't say that i it was like a top five for me you know it i appreciate the craft but there were you know there were aspects of it that i was like oh yeah that's just a tarantino being tarantino you know him being very meta and yep um and i could kind of see the I could see the seams of it a little bit and uh, as much of a like craftsman and uh, as knowledgeable as he is about the period and as um, subversive as the ending is, uh, I couldn't put it way, way up there on my list, but you know, I I definitely enjoyed myself at it. So it's got to go in there somewhere. Um, I think it says something about Tarantino when Once Upon a Time in Hollywood cracked the top 10 of 2019, but it's not even considered close to some of his best movies. It just, you know, it, uh, whether it's the fact that he's kind of recombining aspects of his other movies um, into this one kind of mega movie or um, the fact that we, we saw like a, a probably a handful of movies that were all set in like 1969 Hollywood this year. So uh, maybe it was the, you know, anniversary of the Manson murders or something was on the top of people's minds. But uh, they just like doing films about themselves anyway. So. Yeah. Yeah. There's that's there's definitely a. a a bit of a of a problem runs through Hollywood anyway, but yeah. Um, number six. Number six for me was Jojo Rabbit from Taika Waititi. Ah, oh, this was a very controversial one because I this was very divided actually from some of the stuff I read. There was a few people who really strongly object to any kind of comedic depiction of Hitler. Uh, that was definitely a, a one of the threads that was running there uh, against it. Um, there were other people who felt that um, maybe the laughs didn't really connect the way they should have or that, um, you know, the the message of the movie was a bit confused. But right. I don't know. For me, Taika Waititi's sense of humor is very much similar to my own. I mean, I've, I've liked pretty much everything he's made that I've seen, um, whether it's... You don't get uh, tired of him? No, I don't. I, I feel like he he has this irreverence and this almost like surrealistic sense of humor that really gets to me mm-hmm. um and he you know 
the fact that he does it in like a historical satire in this one uh, also really worked for me. Okay. Um, this was the this one got like one star out of four or five from uh, I think it was the Guardian critic Robbie Collin. Oh yeah. Um, which um, I generally don't agree with him all that often, but this was one of the the ones where I was like really shocked to see how he how much he hated it to be honest yeah was it the the comedic depiction of hitler for him or was it something else no no i i think that's a really dumb argument to not like a movie because you didn't like how something's depicted i think he didn't like how the film portrayed uh some of the characters he thought i think they were flat and something about uh how like which which characters lens hitler is viewed from oh okay. um so a lot of people thought uh, so this uh, Taika Waititi Hitler is a projection of this this kid. Um, Robbie Collin th- seems to think that is a projection of something else different entirely. Oh, okay, I'd have to read his review to, to get a sense of what he means by that. Because, I mean, for me, I, I definitely felt like it was a projection of the kid, the central kid Jojo. Well, you know? like the host of the radio show, uh, BBC uh, Radio 1, I think, was got into like a pretty big argument with him. So, okay. <laughs> yeah, so it's not his take is obviously controversial as well, but it was it was a very divisive film. Um, so you got two of them. So Jojo Rabbit and a Rise of the Skywalker. Rise of Skywalker, I should say. Um, interesting. All right. For my, like, you know, top five, there's a lot of very obvious ones in there, uh, some of which you might might end up sharing. Yeah. Uh, for number five, I've got Knives Out, um, which we've uh, we've already talked about here on the show. But uh, again, like Ryan Johnson, he's one of my guys. You know, I've I've liked him more and more as time <laughs> time goes on. And uh uh, just the the combination of like a murder mystery, uh, something that I already enjoy from like being uh, a fan of the the Poirot adaptations over the years, and just the cast and the uh, the way that he goes about it, the kind of and the fact that it's an original story too, it's got a lot going for it. Um, right. But uh, keeping on the on like a steady track, so we can get to yours. Um, for me, number four. Marriage Story from Noah Baumbach. Mm-hmm. Uh, we haven't really talked about it a huge amount here, but um, this for me was like I remember describing it to various people as like the funniest movie about divorce that I've seen in a long time. Um, well, maybe it depends bit, on how you feel you divorce. Some well, yes, think you it's know, hilarious. Like anyway, right? So. Right. Um, but uh, you know, for something that is like a uh, a movie that's very talky and very based on uh, right. actors doing their thing, um, I was I was with it the whole time. It's a fair, it's a longer movie. It's a longer end. Um, and you know, if you don't like Noah Baumbach, I can definitely see you totally disagreeing with uh with my placing it at number four but yeah um you know for me genre I like, has yeah the, it's sort of like it's not mumblecore but it's kind of mumblecore adjacent you know it's in that <laughs> yes that yes, world very much um, so. yes and then number three uncut gems mm. from the safety brothers um i'm not sure if you've had a chance to see it yet i know it's a wide release i think is january 31st it's playing in my local theater in like a couple weeks but this is a film that wasn't in my top 10 that i suspect will be in my top 10 okay okay because i just love like i like one of the reasons i kind of liked rise of skywalker and a lot of people panned it for it was its pace but i like things to move at a pretty good clip oh, if you can keep like consistently doing it throughout the film yeah and that's and this i'm movie not to a t yeah ex- exactly and if you remember florida project was a movie that wasn't what so well received because there's so many like 
I think despicable things that the characters in the film do. And I feel like this is the same in Uncut Gems, but that kind of stuff doesn't bother me. In fact, I actually kind of enjoy it. So I don't know what that says about me. Uh, you, you like uh, stimulation. You want to be like pounded by by sensory inputs, you know? <laughs> I, That's, guess, uh, yeah. I guess. But every time I walk into a Dave and Buster's, I'm overwhelmed. So I don't know. <laughs> well, Uncut Gems is, is less like Dave and Buster's and more like a uh, two hour heart attack um driven by hard drugs and gambling and booze. Oh, my two favorite things. Um, it's uh, one person I saw described it recently as like um, surviving a car accident and crawling out of the burning wreckage only to discover that the the last uh, two hours was just a weird dream that you had because you fell asleep at the wheel. Like, uh, <laughs> that sounds like inherent vice. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's well, it's, it's it's actually more frenetic than inherent vice, but it's got that same yes. kind of what um, kind of wonk wonky flavor to it so yeah um but yeah if you haven't seen it go check it out the safety brothers are ones to watch for sure um so that's in at number three for me and then for my final two at number two parasites from uh, bong joon ho mm. i have a feeling this one's going to rank up pretty high for you but um you know he's been uh, doing movies about class struggle and um in various contexts whether it's like a uh, post-apocalyptic or a vaguely dystopian kind of context but this is probably his most lifelike movie about the various classes kind of locking horns and uh you know who's the mm-hmm. uh, who's the virtuous one and who's the uh, the predator in those situations uh so you're probably going to hear a lot more about parasite if you haven't seen it already it's it's one of those like uh, foreign language movies that will probably rack up a decent number of yep. nominations when they're announced on the 13th whether it wins all of them is to be determined but it's uh there's a reason why it's got so much energy behind it um, so that's in at number two. And then number one of the year for me has to be Ad Astra. Mm. It's a movie that not very few people saw, unfortunately. Um, the rollout was a little bit hampered by the fact that it came out right in the middle of festival mania uh, when TIFF was on and uh, a lot of other festivals were poised to start. And not to mention the fact that it was a Fox movie that got caught up in the Disney merger. Right. And it's a space movie for adults that Disney didn't really know how to market and were a little bit worried about uh, rolling it out in a significant way, I think. Um, So it was hampered a little bit on that. It was also, you know, it's like like Interstellar, but it didn't have the, um, the kind of director name recognition right. uh, that might drive people to the theater to see it. So it's one of those cerebral space movies, but one that has a father and son dynamic in it that I we haven't seen in a in a space movie before. And some very accomplished cinematography and special effects on a relatively low budget for, you know, these types of movies. I feel like the father-son dynamic is pretty common in space movies. It doesn't have to be father-son. It could be father-daughter. But I feel like there is a lot. I, well, that's well, that's where this movie is different, though, because the, the in this movie, it's the child who has to go into space to track down the parent and kind of help atone for the parent's crimes or, or mistakes. So there's a... There's a twist there that I th- that I don't think we've seen in many movies. Okay, and fair the, enough. Um, not to mention the, the the very like meditative pace of this movie, uh, where it it does have moments of action, but a lot more of it is just uh, quiet reflection, uh, which I which I was like, I was just thinking about First Man as well and how important that Ryan Gosling 
uh, relationship with his wife and his kids were kind of central to the story, too. Okay, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, in, in any case, go out and see it. It's capping off uh, probably, uh, for some reason, the my like uh, last couple of months of uh, media, mm-hmm. uh, if to, to use a really like clinical term, uh, has been uh, very space-based. So you've got Star Wars, obviously, at Astra. Yeah, you love space. Um, yeah, I. Uh, it, there hasn't been a lot of like, normally I would go for like espionage. I'd put that up pretty high, but there hasn't been a lot of really... We haven't gotten a good one yet. Yeah, so like that's, that's kind of taken a bit of a, a backseat recently for me, and it's been all space stuff. I'm, I'm about halfway through the first season of The Expanse. Um, right. Okay. Right now on uh, on Prime Video, so uh, I'm loving that, like the very science based um, approach to that uh, compared to the high fantasy of Star Wars. So, well, you're in luck this year, so because we got Bond and Black Widow. Yes. So maybe we're going to take a you know we've had a um, period of space movies, and now we're going to get back into the espionage. I don't know. Right. Right. But yeah, that is my top ten. So I'll roll through them one more time. At number ten, The Farewell. Number nine, The Rise of Skywalker. Number eight, Us. Number seven, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Number six, Jojo Rabbit. Number five, Knives Out. Number four, Marriage Story. Number three, Uncut Gems. Number two, Parasite. And number one, Ad Astra. Interesting list. Um, very different. I like it. Before I reveal my list, uh, there are a couple films I haven't seen that I suspect could kind of sneak into the top ten. I really had trouble with this exercise, as I usually do every year, because... like. <laughs> Especially in years where there's a couple standout films and then like a ton of really good ones. I just have trouble separating, um, say, between the three and the four, because sometimes the, the difference is so negligible and it comes down to what sort of genre and what kind of characters or, or actors you you like. So P- Peanut Butter Falcon, Uncut Gems, uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, 1917, Ad Astra and Jojo Rabbit. These are films that I haven't seen that I could see cracking in my top 10. So, but since you revealed your list already, I'm going to start from number one and oh, then we can okay. work our way back. All right. But before I get to that, it is very interesting to me that neither of us really have Ford versus Ferrari or a beautiful day in the neighborhood on our list. No, I mean, mine's kind of like, um, if I were to put a number on beautiful day in the neighborhood, I'd do 21 for that. And if I did a number for Ford v Ferrari, I put that at 18. So if I did a top 10, top 20 list, sorry, um, they would probably rank near the end. It might not even rank at all, depending. Yeah. So it's pretty similar for me. Then yeah. Too. I just feel like these two films are getting so much awards buzz, but they're so overrated. I, I can't help but just like feel anger. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we are dealing with an Academy that uh, put that gave Best Picture to Green Book last year. So you know travesty <laughs> still that's yeah i mean my buddy and i were talking about this last night too but green book spotlight and crash i mean three of the most uh i wouldn't say undeserving but few of the most like eyebrow raising winners over the past little while but anyway let's go to my list so you're right uh at number one i do have parasite this film just kind of blew me away the first time i saw it i i do think that film is moving towards a genreless sort of medium where you can have a whole mishmash of different things. And as long as you do the tonal shifts right, I think it's okay. And I actually think I enjoy it because I I don't necessarily enjoy one genre over the other. So thinking back, you look at Aquaman, which had like bits and pieces of all different genres. I actually kind of enjoyed it. So when it's done right, it can be entertaining. So for me, in terms of drama, acting, cinematography, the overall package, I thought Parasite was the best experience I had. So that's my number one. Number two, again, uh, similar. I have Marriage Story at number two. 
Mm-hmm. Um, this actually ranked higher than I expected. Um, probably because I just I have a thing against mumblecore, but when it's done right, it's done very well. And this is a movie that's done very well. And I like the way it's structured. I love the performances. Um, I love how I think it never strays from this sort of smoothness. Like there are shouty moments, but it doesn't go off on tangents. Like a character doesn't all of a sudden go off the deep end, which a lot of these movies tend to do. Right. So I appreciated that very much. If I had to pick, I think this one and Parasite would be the two front runners for best picture right now. Yes, I agree. Yeah. At number three, I have Knives Out. And I'm kind of surprised I ranked this higher than you. Hmm. Um, keep in mind, I, I haven't seen Uncut Gems or Ad Astra. Well, so yeah, yeah. I've got those I, two. Yeah, exactly. So Knives Out, we both agree. This is a great whodunit throwback film, really focused, really really, I think, specific in its desire to accomplish what it wants to accomplish. Ryan Johnson, I'm not as big a fan as you, but I think this is the perfect genre for him. For someone who, like, really, I think, revels in subverting expectations, uh, I think this is a really nice job. Much better than Rise of Sc- or uh, Last Jedi. Uh, number four, um, I have this ranked higher than you, is The Farewell. And so this was a film that I kind of forgot because it was so really so early in 2019, and I Uh, There are very few movies who I think can capture sort of cultural differences that are very nuanced. And this is one of those films. And being of Asian descent myself, I think there are a lot of things I picked up on in this film that other people might not have, although that may be presumptuous. (laughs) Um, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, I thought Aquafina was great. Lulu Wong really knows the material. You can sense that. Someone like like Barry Jenkins with the movies he's done. you, You just know when a director gets something. A lot of the things are details that you would never consider or yes. are written in a screenplay that are uh, buoyed by characters' performances. And I love the bilingual aspect of it. And, and number five, this is where I think I get a little controversial. But this is, again, starting to be the messy middle where number five and number seven could flip-flop and I'd be okay with it. So number five is Dolomite is my name. Oh, okay. Uh, this is the Eddie Murphy vehicle about Rudy Ray Moore, Dolomite, who is a black exploitation actor back, I think, in, was it the 70s? Yeah, sounds about right. Something like yeah. that. Yeah, something like that. Um, I love this movie. Again, the pacing is breakneck. Uh, things happen quite quickly, but I love it. A lot of these things with uh, with biographical films is that you tend to have like a very like caricature, smarmy villain and so for in the case of ford v ferrari this is josh lucas's character so i'm very happy in dolomite is my name that overall there wasn't like like an antagonizing force for the sake of antagonism i think for the most part a lot of the characters in the film are very supportive of eddie murphy they have good reasons to doubt his ability but i like how it's uh i think a very positive and triumphant film uh, I thought the performance was great. Wesley Snipes was great. I, I didn't. There wasn't a single thing I didn't really like about it. But I can see why people would think this is a nothing film, a very paint by the numbers autobiographical film. But I really liked it. Number six, again, another biographical film, The Irishman. So my problem with this film is ma- ma- mostly based on length and the fact that it. I don't think Scorsese really pushes the limits of what you can do other than the fact that this three and a half hour movie covers a lot of time and it takes a lot of skill and editing skill to tell a coherent story. And just for me, like I put it uh, in my top 15, if we were doing a top 15, I'd put mine at like 13. Okay. Yeah. So uh, we can all agree this is a good film, uh, not a great film. By no means do I think this is Scorsese's top five film ever. No. I I do think people... uh, 
kind of missed the boat on Al Pacino, who I think was better than Robert De Niro. I think Pacino's performance was just much better, maybe because we only know Jimmy Hoffa for a certain period of time, whereas Robert De Niro covers a lot. And he's not a very convincing 30, 40, 50 year old. Yeah. As much as those like hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Like you watch him throw a gun into the river and you're like, wow, this guy does not have any yeah. range of motion. Yeah. Right. Um, number seven. Um, this is where it starts to get hard. But I have a hidden life here. OK. So a hidden life was, again, another bit of a frustrating movie because of the length. But in terms of like a return to form for Terrence Malick. Uh, a meditative spiritual piece with tons of great scenery and cinematography. I really liked uh, what this film was trying to say. I think the execution missed a little bit, and this is one of those films that could fall out of the top 10. But so far, uh, I, I really do think that if you have the time for it, if you have the patience for it, if you understand Terrence Malick's love for interpretive, uh, I guess, I don't know, hay cutting (laughs) interpretive uh farm work i guess i don't even know what to call it uh i think this is a really yeah this is a really good film number eight i don't disagree with you on anything here once upon a time in hollywood um you have a number seven i have a number eight so i'm pretty on the spot with this one yeah now the next two or three i I constantly debate. I haven't really finalized it, and I feel like I have time to do it before the awards, so <laughs> don't blame me just yet. <laughs> but number nine, and I'm kind of surprised this didn't make yours, but The Lighthouse. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, so this like really experimental film really pushed the limits. I thought its execution was fantastic. There are certain parts of the film that lost me, but like another, all the films from like number six onwards, there are always parts that just I didn't really feel. But The Lighthouse with Barbara Pattinson and Willem Dafoe about these two lighthouse keepers who go crazy in this uh, New England lighthouse just had everything you'd want in sort of a Lovecraftian horror film. Yes. And like, I loved it too. I mean, I, I wanted it in my top 10, but I it got bumped to 11. Right. So like, I'm a big fan of experimental film. If you do something different and it works, I love it. Uh, I, I think films these days don't take enough risks. And that's always been my complaint about a lot of films, actually. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. The Lighthouse took a risk, ran away, ran with it. And the result was, I think, a really um, great horror thriller. And the last spot, so this one I had trouble with, but it came down to Booksmart and Joker. Mm, okay. And I'm inclined to put Booksmart in. So I'm a big fan of teen movies, I would say. Uh, Booksmart, I thought, was different from a lot of the raunchy teen films that we used to get in the 2000s. Yeah. Um, I love Caitlin Deaver and Beanie Feldstein's uh, relationship. I thought... It was a pretty predictable film, but also there was enough in there that was new and fresh to me. And there was enough funny moments in it for me to make this really enjoyable. The overall look of the film I thought was pretty unique. It almost looks like a throwback film about high school in the 80s and 90s. Something about the aesthetic in there. Yeah, it could be that like the the 80s are back right now or they, yeah. they were back or so. I don't know. can't keep track of yeah. that stuff. But yeah, there's, there's definitely like a... There's callbacks to that era of like John Hughes movies. Right. Exactly. And if you look at the costume, some of these characters wear the round glasses, the sequin dresses uh, that the two leads wear, I I think is really great. And The Joker is just a film that I think was very well done, but not again for a film that takes on such a psychotic character, doesn't take enough risks. Very well done, but I think this would be number 11 if I had to pick right now. Mm, yeah, I pushed it pretty far down the list, and not because I didn't like it, but because I, I felt it was 
it was edged out by a lot of other movies that I rank at like similar star rankings, but that I actually like, I liked more overall. So yes. for me, it was all the way down to 27. Yeah. And this one, I think it's really hard to peel away the sort of public uh, discourse about this film. I think sometimes when a film gets so much attention in the press, it kind of makes people more entrenched in their opinion. So if you really liked Joker and someone said, no, it's not a good film, it doesn't take risks, I think you're more inclined to just dig deep and be like, well, this is the top 10 film of the year. <laughs> yeah, right. It's sort of like the Star Wars discourse where I, I think you have two sides that are deeply entrenched. But so for the top half, I think we were kind of in agreement. But the bottom half is where we really start to differ. Right. Which is not unusual. But I thought also, I think, reflective of the year we had where there were a few real standouts, consensus standouts, but a lot of good films that I think uh, are up to subjective opinion where you could rank anywhere from four to 15. And I think you could justify any of those rankings. Yeah. And do you feel like um, like this year you ended up seeing more movies in theaters than you did uh, in previous years? I wouldn't say more. Maybe an equal number. I ended up seeing one less, which has surprised me. I usually watch the same number of movies every year, like a few a month. That comes out too, I think. I don't know. I thought this year would be really strong. Um, but it, it isn't. And I'm not quite sure why that is. I think maybe my expectations are too high, especially with it with the summer blockbusters. Like if you look at our lists, no big summer blockbuster made it. No, I mean, I put uh, for summer blockbusters, probably like John Wick is down at 17 for me. Endgame is down at 28. Um, Far From Home. 26, Captain Marvel, right. 31. And it wasn't too long ago where we were kind of debating if Black Panther or Infinity War were the best films of the year. Yeah, exactly. So I, either they've gotten worse in quality or we've gotten sick of them. Yeah, I mean, for me, like, as I did have a good time at Endgame. I'm not going to deny that. Um, I right. just, I, I feel like the the experience, the, the overall, like, Marvel experience was beat out by a lot of really, really good stuff this year. Like, um, like all the ones that we just listed or even the ones that I'm putting in like numbers 11 through 20. Like, right. I, I've also got stuff like High Life on there. That's not a 2019 release. Technically, it, it came out in 2018, but it didn't make wide release until um, this past year, 2019. Okay, so what's the rule behind that? Because Just Mercy was pushed from 2019 December to 2020 January. Does it qualify as a 2019 film? Because it was show. I think it does. Yeah. So because it was shown in festivals in 2019. Yeah, because they 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 showed it at festivals and they showed it uh, like for regular consumers um, in like L.A. and New York, and okay. that qualifies it for the Oscars. You know, as far as the Oscars are concerned, it, it's eligible. Um, High Life was similar in the sense that it it was uh, didn't really roll out until. Uh, 2019 and the fact that it was like a, a movie made by a French auteur and all that stuff right. so that it was delayed even more because of that so yeah that for me like technically I saw that this past year but it's it's a 2018 movie according to the the technical people right um, but then other stuff in my like top 20 for example I have John Wick 3 uh, 4V Ferraris in there um, the Hugh Jackman movie Bad Education which that uh, almost made my list yeah it got snapped up uh, by HBO so it's not getting the kind of rollout that it otherwise would um, right and even uh, Doctor Sleep which I talked about here on the show I put that at number 16 I like that a lot more than I expected so uh, mm-hmm. um, yeah that those are kind of filling in some of the uh, that that back 
back 10. Where did you have Midsommar? I have that at 25. Oh, okay. Um, so I had it up higher to start, but then I've... I've been a bit conflicted about Midsommar. There's been a few like things with the like character motivations that I've meditated about. I don't like quite as much as I did when it first came out. Which is why I'm surprised Rise of Skywalker uh, cracked your top 10, because I feel like there are a lot of character motivations and character decisions in that movie that I think were questionable. Yeah. Oh, I agree. But but it's but, but it's Star Wars, so it gets a pass from me. <laughs> <laughs> I guess these are subjective top 10 lists. So I'll let it slide. But I've got like uh, other stuff ahead of Midsommar, for example. I've got the Godzilla sequel, which probably very- What? F- yeah. Very few people would would understand, but like I love Godzilla too. So <laughs> Godzilla was near the bottom of my list. I found it so boring. I don't know. I loved I loved the him going thermonuclear and blowing up <laughs> King Ghidra. That was great. Well, I mean, okay. I should say there are sequences in every film that I like, but as a whole, no. It's like a Rise of Skywalker. I I had it in my twenties, maybe. Okay. I didn't okay. go that far because like after top fifteen, I just like cut everything out. But it was definitely not even close to top fifteen for Rise of Skywalker or Godzilla. Yeah, well, I put stuff. I put like Alita Battle Angel ahead of Godzilla. Um, but oddly, Godzilla is ahead of both Joker and Endgame, <laughs> which <laughs> doesn't make a whole amount. But but again, like it's that same problem you were talking about, where the uh, you're dealing with a uh, a mushy middle where you're kind of like you know from one day to the next or one month to the next you're gonna be swapping stuff out so like probably like endgame is a better film than godzilla but when i made this list i i had seen godzilla more recently so oh okay but then it might it might totally change around when you ask me like next month or something so do you want to close things out just real quick with some stuff that we hated this year uh sure in terms of stuff that i Absolutely hated. One thing that this isn't something I saw theatrically, thank God, but uh, Six Underground oh, on Netflix. The Ryan Reynolds movie. <laughs> oh my God. That is one of the most steaming piles of cinematic trash that I've seen. Really? This year, yeah, or 2019. There are definitely bayheads out there. I get it. I understand the appeal of stuff like The Rock. Um, I like The Rock. The Rock was a good movie and some of his earlier work, but the Transformers stuff, obviously we're not going to get into that, but the this new one, people were like, oh, this is his first direct uh, directing job since uh, finishing up with the Transformers movies. Maybe he'll go back to doing stuff like he did in The Rock. Maybe, but also he's paired it with like some of the most garbage politics and nihilistic viewpoints it it just left an incredibly bad taste in my mouth it's it's simultaneously lazy but also really committed at being an ugly movie right so yeah that's that's definitely at the bottom of my list anything else another one would be hellboy oh no (laughs) you know that that gets an extra bonus um amount of hate because it it was so disappointing you know there's a lot of promise going into it of being a more adult interpretation of the character but just the the shoddiness of the way it was put together was a huge disappointment. Other 2019 lowlights, uh, the Lion King remake that was really annoying. Men in Black International also very poor. Mm, I didn't. I skipped that. I, I'm kind of thankful I skipped it. Yeah, Seaberg, the Kristen Stewart biopic about um, Gene Seaberg. That was that was that bad. Yeah, eh? really, just like a combination. Again, a combination of like a very 
irritating political viewpoints um, combined right. with some very sloppy filmmaking. You know that new Kristen Stewart movie coming out, uh, the one where she's underwater? Yeah, and it's just called like Underwater. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. I was trying to think of the title. I was like, why does it not come to me? I think it's, I think it's just called Underwater. Okay, yeah. So that movie was made two, I think two years ago too. So yeah. that's another stinker potentially. But yeah, very likely. Yeah. Do you, do you track down any any uh, low lights for uh, for your viewing? Yes, I did. By far, my most hated hated film of 2019. And looking back, it's not even a competition at all. It's Adam Agoyan's Guest of Honor. Oh yes, okay. You talked about that when is, you were at VIF. Oh my yeah. god, it was the opening film for VIF, and only because Adam Agoyan is a local filmmaker. But this is the most convoluted, cliched, like incomprehensible movie i've seen in quite some time it almost i rarely get angry through like watching films but this was one of those films that like right it wasn't the content that made me angry it was the execution and just its lack of focus so this is a story about david thewlis playing a food or a health inspector in toronto trying to come to terms with this fractured relationship with his daughter which is complicated by murder death infidelity infidelity uh, did you see this movie no but i remember you ranting about oh it my before. god <laughs> it is it is so bad i would put this up there as among one of the worst films i've seen in the past five years but uh, okay let's let's move on because I, I i just can't like <laughs> I, I don't understand the hype behind the director he made one good movie many years ago and he's coasted on it since the other movie that was really disappointing to me was motherless brooklyn mm-hmm uh, this was the Edward Norton directed sort of, I guess, noir kind of period piece about a, a Tourette's detective in or detective tur- with Tourette's. Yeah, <laughs> that's not a, a better way to put there's it. There's not a lot of, of of detectives with Tourette's. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So he's uncovering this like city conspiracy has to do with dirty cops, the mob, informants, politics, all that kind of stuff. It sounds great on paper. On film, it is tragically boring really did not deliver um this is again one of those films where like it really sours me on edward norton as a filmmaker we all know he has a reputation right so um this i think in my opinion proves to me that as a filmmaker alone without some sort of oversight um he just can't execute something very well the other one the third one is probably io do you remember that one it was a netflix oh, sci-fi yes. pick yeah. with anthony mackie and i think margaret quay margaret Qualley, yeah, exactly yeah. and Again, one of those post-apocalyptic space films about new life, new planets, and it is so tragically boring. I fell asleep. There's no chemistry between the leads. The production design is okay. You kind of expect better. Um, It's kind of crazy to think about how hard it is to replicate a post-apocalyptic universe. Um, It's not just about empty rooms and dust flying all over the place. For that reason, I, I don't think it was a very compelling Uh, emotional piece either so there's that and then i hate to throw this in there but dark phoenix was not very good (laughs) i personally enjoyed it just because i think uh it's the x-men thing and i think sophie turner actually was a good uh gene gray but yeah those are probably my worst films of the year so i think is it fair to come to a consensus that we both think parasite is probably the best movie of the year no because i put ad astra at the top of the- <laughs> <laughs> 
But I don't have Ad Astra on my list, so my number one versus your number two basically means number one. <laughs> yeah, all right. Yeah, if we're going with like the weighted kind of thing between the two of us, then yeah. Next episode, we'll be reacting to whatever comes from the Oscar nominations. Um, so we're recording. When do they come out again? They come out on the 13th. So we're recording this okay. on the 5th of January. Um, so, you know, by the time this episode comes out, the nominations may have already been released it depends on you know, all right how so quick question edit, but yeah quick question which film do you think will have the most nominations the most nominations i think marriage story oh, okay i'm with you there i think marriage story is gonna get the most yeah i think it'll be marriage story um uncut gems parasite knives out like, uncut gems really eh well it's actually, not getting a lot of critical love like well it's I getting really critical love. Uncut it's gems not getting is- it's not getting so much like um uh, viewer like awards love. Well, viewer love because not very many people have seen it yet. I, well, I mean, the people who have seen it really like it, but I, I just don't think it's a film because it's Adam Sandler because of the content. I don't think it's a film that 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 awards um, people awards bodies love. No, I don't think it'll win any. I think it'll pick up some nominations, but I don't think it'll win a whole lot. Right. Uh, I'll I'll put the over under at five. I think it'll get under five nominations total. Uh, my my top picks would be Marriage Story and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think those two would get the most uh, nominations. Yep. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Uh, maybe The Irishman, but Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Marriage Story for sure would be my top two. I would hesitate to say that either of those films would be in the top 20 of the decade. I don't know if 2019 was a particularly strong year. You always say that, though. That's that's the problem. I know <laughs> that's the problem. But I, looking back, I think 2016 was a really str- last strong year. I can't remember what I said about 2016. No, you definitely said that it wasn't a strong year. You say that every year. 2016? <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's true. Okay, fine. <laughs> but fine. I, I guess my expectations are always too high. I don't know. Well, it's good to have high expectations, though. I mean, but I think... But then you're easily disappointed. Yeah, but I don't know. I mean, for me, like, you know, top of the decade, I'm I'm just doing some quick sorting here on Letterboxd. And, you know, for me, Parasite is in there as, uh, like, stuff that I gave, like, the highest ranking to. I don't know. Top 10 of the decade would be too difficult. I, I, I'd have at least two Paul Thomas Anderson films in there, so. Yes, yeah. Um, I think I've got, like, let's see, Boyhood's in there. Um, obviously Wes Anderson, um, Arrival. I mean, Moonlight is in there. Arrival would be up Ghost there. Story, um, Blade Runner 2049. See, all these films I would rank ahead of um, Marriage Story for sure. According to Letterboxd, uh, of the like 1,600 or more total films that I've logged on the service, oh, um, the I've watched 811 movies from the 2010s. So, oh, 810? 811. So... That means that like over half of the of my total, like everything I've ever watched was in that decade. Oh, whack. Really? That's why I love Letterboxd. You can you can kind of get that perspective. But yeah, I know. I'm I'm just I'm surprised because uh, I only have 400 in the 2010s. It looks like. But I mean, that's that's where your specialties are, because you've seen a lot more of these stuff from like the 80s and 90s than I have. So, yeah, true. Yeah, I, I do have a soft spot for 90s films, so. <laughs> uh, looking ahead in the future, though, we will be talking about the Oscar nominations in the next episode. Uh, we may also touch on some more of the things that we will have seen that we've caught up on from 2019. The I might get a chance to talk about uh, 1917, mm-hmm. which I saw recently, uh, some sort of mixed feelings on that. And 
of course, we will have to be uh, casting our attention ahead to what everything the 2020 yeah. has to offer, including stuff like Dune and um, the new Bond film, uh, No Time to Die. And of course, all of the, the indie things that we don't even know exist yet, you know, stuff coming out of Sundance and Khan uh, and places like that. So yeah, it's going to be an exciting time here on the podcast. Mm-hmm. But I think that about does it for this episode. Head over to kinetoscope.ca where you can see my review of uh, The Rise of Skywalker and you can comment on under it and tell me that I'm wrong. Uh, we'll also be posting, I'll be posting a couple of wrap-ups of some of the new stuff to appear on Netflix and on Amazon Prime Video in the coming days, so uh, keep your eyes open for that. And until the next episode, my name is Robert Snow in Toronto. And my name is Jason Chen in Vancouver. Thank you for listening and we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>